0: Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America,
1: it's Tony Katz today. Mr. President, I'm delighted to be able to repay your visit to our country. In Washington, not long ago, you told us, you told the Congress, quote, we have no fear nor should anyone in the world have it, end of quote. You and all Ukrainians, Mr. President, remind the world every single day what the meaning of the word courage is. From all sectors of your economy, all walks of all life, it's astounding, astounding. Remind us that freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're going to be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes. We'll do it. Thank you. Uh, A lot of love in the room.
0: President Biden making the surprise trip to Ukraine. There in Kiev spending time with Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. That's who you heard say, we'll do it at the end. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Guys, what is going on? Um, how was this trip perceived? Well, I mean, that's all about your political point of view, isn't it? You've got a political point of view. You're going to see it the way you want to see it. Let me give you two ways this is viewed. This is... Was CNN Jim Schudo asking uh, the the questions? Uh, Doug Brinkley, CNN presidential historian, uh, he's that's what, that's his title, by the way. CNN presidential historian uh, answering uh, the the questions here.
1: Doug Brinkley, I want to speak to you as our resident historian here. Place this in the context in the pantheon of presidential visits to war zones. Presidents have visited Iraq and Afghanistan in recent years, but those were U.S. wars. This is a Ukrainian war no US military presence on the ground. How significant?
2: It's extremely significant. The United States is wedded more to the Ukraine than ever before. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I go back to history and think of Roosevelt and Churchill when FDR had to sneak off in the dead of night, even had a body double at one point to first meet Winston Churchill off the coast of Newfoundland and then of course Mm -hmm. you had all those World War II meetings between Churchill Uh, It's worth, I mean, mentioning Churchill, Koselinski has been called the Churchill of our generation. And Biden going there today, I think it's going to be a a moment for the history books. It's Mm. like when John F. Kennedy went to Berlin uh, in 1961 and gave a speech at the height of the Cold War. Ukraine is the new Berlin. It's the rally Mm. point for NATO and the the Western allies. And and, uh, I think Biden uh, did, did something really heroic.
0: Um, that's a lot of praise. That's a lot of, oh my gosh, praise. First, this whole idea of Zelensky as Churchill has always, to me, been a ridiculous, ridiculous point. Um, You are nowhere near, you are nowhere close to being able to understand Nowhere near being able to understand whether or not Zelensky throughout his career can do what Churchill did. The constant, continual rallying of the people. What he did at the start is not where he's at right now. It is a very different Zelensky. He has hurt himself on the world stage with how he has asked for money and asked for help trying to guilt people and shame people. It's not Churchill. That is is not it. It's like when John F. Kennedy went to Berlin in sixty one. That's a stretch, man. I think that's a stretch. But again, as I said, this is a, a wholly, solely political point of view. They asked uh Governor Ron DeSantis his take.
1: Americans are, are
3: asking, you know, how much more money, how much more time, how much more human suffering?
4: Well, they have effectively a blank check policy with no clear strategic objective identified. And um, these things can can escalate, and I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or or over Crimea. So I think it would behoove them to identify what is the strategic objective that they're trying to to achieve, Uh, but just saying it's an open-ended blank check, uh, that is not acceptable. So
1: Governor, what does a win look like for us in Ukraine, for Ukraine?
4: Well, I think it's important to point out, I mean, you know, the fear of kind of Russia going into NATO countries and all that and steamrolling, you know, that has not even come close to happening. I think they've shown themselves to be a third rate military power. Uh, I think they've suffered tremendous, tremendous losses. Uh, I got to think that the people in Russia... Uh, are probably disapproving of what's going on. I don't think they can speak up about it for obvious reasons. So I think Russia has been really, really wounded here. Um, and I don't think that they are the same threat to our country, even though they're hostile. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're on the same level as a China. That's
0: accurate. That is absolutely accurate uh, from Governor DeSantis. So here you have these these two views of what it is Joe Biden did in this visit uh, to to Ukraine, but uh, Steve Ducey there asked the right questions. The question we've been asking here: What does a win look like? Notice no one ever says, "Here's where we win. Here's the moment where we can stop giving money. Here's the moment where, like, we we we've done the job." It doesn't come. There's no answer to that question. All we hear about is fighting Putin's aggression. Sometimes you hear about destabilizing Russia. Well, is it destabilizing Russia or is it destabilizing Putin himself? Is it about getting Putin out of power and therefore who is in power? Is it about trying to get Russia to go back to being a capitalist nation or at least making that effort, I should say, uh, again? Or is it putting in some other despot who's a little more aligned uh, with, with American values? Is it the acceptance of the idea of, uh, of Russia as a vassal state? Of China, what's the plan? I know that you and I—not maybe not you—some, some, uh, and and I have disagreed about whether or not we should be funding this. And I, and I did not start with the, it having a problem with sending weapons to Ukraine. I, I didn't help them fight the Russians. To me, made perfect sense. But you start taking a look at the money, you're like, okay, this is a lot of money. Uh, better money than 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 blood. But when does it end? And that starts leading to, wait a second. Why haven't we described to the American people when this is over? What is our goal? If we're going to fight this proxy war for the love of God, what's our goal? And that has never been elucidated. That's never been stated. So how can I do anything uh, except say, you know what? I'm, I'm getting tired here and this is starting to become a problem. Now there are people who started at that place. I didn't start at that place. I started with the of course I would help the Ukrainians. I think we should. But it has to have a goal. If the if what is what is the win? What's the win? What's our objective in this fight? Fights without objectives mean that somebody who uh makes dollars off of this just keeps it going. Now, unless I'm gonna get some dollars out of this, I'm not interested. I'm also not interested. But you know my point. Somehow we're never the people making the dollars. Nah, this has got to have an end game. It needs, we require an end game. Man, they are not providing one for us, now are they? So this visit to Ukraine from Biden, as I've been saying, a political visit. Does it rally some NATO nations? Yeah, probably. Does it make... The people who already support Biden, I mean, Churchill, and look at this, and look at that. He's like, JFK, what, am I supposed to think of Biden now as young and virile? That's just not happening. But of course, his supporters are going to love it. Do I think it moves a constituency of voters? No, I don't. Because I think it'll be forgotten about tomorrow when we get bad economic news. So no, I don't think it's moving people in 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 that way. The people who are opposed to him politically are taking a look at the money and saying, what is our objective here? So I'm not opposed to the visit. Clearly, it's a political visit. Presidents will do political things. We should not be surprised by this. But if we're gonna keep putting our money in, we should be telling America what the goal is. And as this administration doesn't state what the goal is you create more and more willingness to walk away from the Ukrainian people, which is going to be hard for Joe Biden because he just went to Ukraine and said, we're going to be with you till the end. We're in this all the way. The American people are not. And Biden spending more time placating Ukrainians than explaining to Americans. That's a problem. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. Everything about basketball in Indiana is looking up. All right, I don't know. I don't know about the Pacers. I mean, they're going to come off off the All Star break. We'll see what kind of team uh, that they are. I think we'd all consider ourselves quite lucky at this stage of the game if they made the playoffs. But when it comes to Purdue and when it comes to IU, holy cow! You got the brackets, the the possible seedings out and that shows Purdue as a, as a one seed and IU IU men as as a four seed. I think number thirteen overall, and you're like. This looks good. This looks good. And then you take the IU women who just beat the pants off of Purdue. I mean, they're the number two team in, in the country, but it was, and, and I I was stunned to hear this because I, I would have guessed that this had happened before. The first sellout for the IU women basketball team in history, in, in, in Assembly Hall's history? I mean, that's that's crazy. I would I just would have assumed that that had happened before. But that's how good this team is. And, and on the college level, because, it no, the, the, the pros are a very, very different thing. Certainly, if you get to playoff time, you'll get more of an audience. Um, but you play at the level that the IU women are playing at, and people will watch. They, they want to cheer it on. They want to be excited by it. Tony Katz, good to be with you. JMV joins us right now from 93.5, 107.5. The fan, he is the voice of sports in the state of Indiana. And we talk about this women's team, which clearly doesn't get enough play. Uh, damn, this team is good.
2: No, it should. They were tell- Terry Moran has done, Tony, a, an incredible job. There's no doubt about that. And- I've had three of the players on my shows over the various uh, months of days we have seen, and uh, they're also locked in. That's what really stands out to me. I know we use that as a cliche in sports, but they're also locked in and connected with one another, from you know Grace Berger to McKenzie Holmes to uh, Cindy Parrish. It's not your average type of team, considering, I think, uh, Indiana-wise, there's only one I think, girl from the state of Indiana, I could be wrong about that, but I know one that is huge as far as, as what they're doing is Sidney Parrish, who's a transfer from Oregon who was the 2020 Miss Basketball out of Hamilton Southeastern. But, nah, they are so connected with one another and in turn connected with their coach. And let me tell you, Tony, they are enjoyable to watch. And right now, you know, you're looking at a team that I think I'd be surprised if it didn't make it to the Final Four in the upcoming NCAA tournament.
0: We move it over to uh, the men's side. You take a look at IU. Um, again... They had to grit out uh, this this win. Uh, they didn't, as they've described. They got to come out in the first five minutes of each half, charging, pushing. They didn't do that in either half. This was a a gritty, gritty win uh, over the weekend, and kind of kind of proves the idea, as, as some uh, friends noted to me. Man, uh, uh, home court sometimes means
2: something. <laughs> it does, Tony. And and Illinois was not their best player on that day on Saturday afternoon, too. Terrence Shannon, so. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I think it also speaks to what IU fans – we know, Tony, what Boilermaker fans are most concerned about. It's a tournament meltdown. It's a disappointment in the NCAA tournament. I think IU fans are most concerned about this mixed bag of what they may or may not get on a given night. And normally at home, you don't have to worry about it. You did on Saturday because that was, as you mentioned, a grinded out type of thing. But I think that's what IU fans are most worried about. It's exactly what you're going to get. You know what you're going to get from Trace Jackson Davis game in and game out, but you just don't know what you're going to get from everybody else. And that can be a cause of concern. you got to go to Michigan State coming up on Tuesday before they get round number two at Purdue coming up on Saturday. So this is a big week for the Hoosiers, Tony, to say the least.
0: Talk to me about, uh, as you see, uh, this seeding, right? And, and you, you saw this everywhere yep. over the weekend. Purdue is a number one seed. They got the win, uh, yesterday to end, uh, that losing skid that they've, that they've unfortunately, uh, been on. Um, they're, they're a number one seed, Alabama's a number one seed, Houston's a number one seed, Kansas is a number one seed, and Kansas, I forgot who they were playing, beat the beat the living snot out of them uh, over the weekend. I'm, I cannot remember who they played. It's killing me. It was, um, Baylor. it was Baylor. Baylor, thank you so much. Baylor is not a not a schlub team and just uh, obliterated them there. Uh, talk to me about these seeds. Do these things change over the next couple of weeks? Uh, and is Purdue with that three game skid? Are they still a number one seed?
2: Yeah, they're still a number one seed, and things absolutely could change over the next three weeks because this is uh, gonna be a tournament where there's going to be no clear cut favorite. Yeah, you should you could see slide in and slide out situations across the board because we're talking about, you know, Purdue's in, in the mix here as far as a one seed, Alabama, Houston, teams like that that aren't exactly teams that you would think, yeah, they're locked in. Right now, they are, but I think you're going to see some adjusting some sliding as far as that's concerned. And, you know, it's a year, too, Tony, where Carolina may not be in, where Kentucky is a struggle, where Duke, with that transition from Mike Krzyzewski to John Shire, is not going as smoothly as I'm sure that they would like. It's not your your garden variety type of college basketball season, which I think makes it even more interesting as you mentioned IU as of right now uh, it is predicted a four seed and I think most Hoosier fans would definitely take that but man this is is a big week for them to really try to get going for what is going to be the remainder of their season. A couple of road games at Michigan State and Purdue that's going to be difficult but man it's something that we gauge. We gauge what we think IU is going to be and these are two really big opportunities this week to show some folks
0: by the way IU is the 13th seed right now Marquette is 14th Gonzaga 15th Xavier uh 16th I I think uh being a four seed I mean 13th overall but a four seed yeah. um not I, I they got to be happy with where they're getting
2: placed as we sit right now There's no doubt about that yeah, no doubt about that and then if you think let's take this for example you, you think you're there and you watch IU Tony on Saturday and they as you mentioned, grind out that win over Illinois. There's still that room for improvement, and there's that room for growth, and that speaks to what I'm I'm talking about here is the fact that there's just not a lot of teams you feel are locked in at the top of that list right now, so you could see some major adjusting just by a team this time of year, Tony, that gets on a run.
0: Talking to JMV from 93.5107.5, the fan, the voice of sports in Indiana, um, I, I I take a look at that game coming up, right, where IU is going to travel up the road and play Purdue, and I say to myself, that's much more of a must-win game for Purdue than it is for IU. You you, oh, you, no you, you lose the yeah. first time around, there there is certainly a redemption factor in terms of where your fan base is, but there's also got to be something in your headspace. You lose to IU twice, you don't feel so good going into this bracket.
2: No, you don't, and you're thinking if you lose to IU on Saturday night, it's probably some of the similar issues that Boilermaker fans have concerned themselves with over the last couple of weeks whether it's you know guard play to close out a game in the backcourt. which Tony we've talked about a number of times earlier this year that was no issue whatsoever one possession games especially on the road was a forte of Purdue until it wasn't but we also have to remember that they have youthful dudes in the backcourt that are trying to work through it and you know, Boilermaker fans are always going to be concerned about that whistle they're going to get. Or in this case, I think it's been more this season of the Zach Edey whistle that they feel they're not getting. They feel that his arms are getting held. He's getting held in the post even before the basketball is delivered to him. So it's always going to be those myriad right there of concerns with the Boilers as far as where their team is right now. And you talked about giving a fan base a complex. There's no doubt about that. If IU were to roll up to West Lafayette Saturday night and get a win and sweep Purdue in the regular season, that would significantly give Boilermaker fans a complex. But remember, in that first meeting, IU won down in Bloomington, but Purdue in the second half, it was because of that first half that was such a mess for Purdue in the second half. They played better. They were right there at the end. This is going to be incredibly difficult for IU, and it's going to show IU fans something, too, where their team is beyond Trace Jackson Davis in the now, getting set to go to the Big Ten tournament, getting set to go to the NCAA tournament. That's going to give them a little thought of where they are right now, too. So, Cannot wait until Saturday night,
0: Tony. That right there is JMV. Uh, you can follow him on on the Twitter box, and you can of course find him uh, over there at 935 ninety three five one zero seven five. The fan in Indianapolis, the voice of sports in Indiana. Uh, that's I mean that that's just what I've dubbed him. I mean I don't know, make the man some t shirts, maybe a hat for him, a beer koozie. Uh, he's a beer koozie kind of guy. I think that would work. That would work pretty well. Keep it right here. This is Tony Katz Today. So there are layoffs going on all over the state, all over the country, I should say. There are tech layoffs going on everywhere. So how is this good for the state of Indiana? Tony Katz. Good to be with you. Gary Dick joins us right now from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. And, uh, you know, 250,000 layoffs is what was predicted. You make note of the fact that there have already been more than 200,000 layoffs in the tech sector, yet you have stories national tech layoffs could create opportunity in Indiana. What is that opportunity?
2: Yeah, Tony, and, you know, we're seeing the headlines literally every day. You mentioned two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand 250,000 whatever the, the number is now. Already, just since the first of the year, a little more than a month, nationwide, all the big firms, Amazon, Microsoft, Twitter, Salesforce, which is having an effect here, uh, obviously, in, uh, in central Indiana. So the numbers uh, are big. But in talking over the weekend on the show uh, with several tech leaders, TechPoint's uh, CEO, uh, Ting Goody, and also uh, the head of Elevate Ventures, uh, Christopher Day, uh, they say, in, in, in a way, this is kind of a silver lining, if you will, because a lot of this talent is now flooding the marketplace, and these companies that have had trouble hiring, finding people, they're actually getting some talent, and, and that is a, that is a positive thing. But uh, you know, Ting Goody points out supply is still uh, – or demand is still outstripping supply by a factor of two. So there still is this, this tech worker shortage, uh, but in the short run at least, or at least for, for a while here, there's a, there's a feeling there's a positive side to these layoffs that are happening in the tech sector.
0: So you, I wanna make sure we go through something here because th- this ties into a bit of a political drama. We see layoffs going on everywhere, more than 200,000 as you have uh, reported. Um, but you've got 130 Hoosier tech companies reporting $441 million in capital. Again, as you're uh, discussing, whatever happened to the idea that if Indiana passes certain pieces of legislation, that we wouldn't be able to attract the talent? It would seem to me, without having to dig into that part, that Indiana is in a place and is working hard to attract the talent. Even though you have this two to one, we still need many, many more people. Are they finding that there are other things regarding Indiana that have made it more difficult to attract the people?
2: Well, I, I, you know, I think if you look at uh, the uh, kind of the 50,000-foot view uh, of the situation, you talk about uh, the political side of things. And if you talk with tech, in particular, if you talk with tech CEOs and in, in those in the startup community, they will argue that when you talk about some of the social issues that have been out there, Uh, Certainly over the past number of years that that can be that is that can be a detriment to attracting talent from outside of the state. That's just that's just a fact that you will see when you talk uh, talk to them. The flip side, you will talk, look at the, uh, the the business climate here, quality of life, quality of place, all those things that make Indiana a good place to do business. And that's certainly uh, we're, we're able to attract the investment. Great example is the uh, Skywater Technology uh, uh, investment up at Purdue, nearly $2 billion going into a semiconductor R&D and production facility that will employ uh, hundred, hundreds of folks. So it's a, a 2 edge sword, but I will tell you when you when you talk in particular in the tech community, that there is a feeling that, that some of these social issues are a detriment to attracting talent.
0: Yet we see the opportunities growing and growing. Talking to Gary Dick inside IndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Uh, Let's talk about where you do grow those opportunities. You talk about a quality of life conversation, one that I I agree with, but does the quality of life as these companies doing the hiring, Is this come from the fact that housing is affordable or does this come from the fact that the amenities are much more metropolitan? What is the mover for these companies to engage further investment in the state?
2: Yeah, I, I think it depends on where, where you're talking. But you come to the, some of the metro areas, Indianapolis in particular, but even uh, in in Fort Wayne and some of the uh, more more urban areas, they're going to be looking for uh, those uh, uh, attractions, those those assets that are more. Uh, more urban, more metropolitan, if you will. But look around the state of Indiana where investment is going, especially these uh, so-called ready grants. The state is is funding these regional projects around the state, many of them in smaller communities that are doing things with their downtown, that are uh, investing in things like pools and, and, and running and biking trails and all of those types of things. That all gets to this whole quality of life uh, piece. And it, we're seeing it. You were on this. Tech theme, uh, if you will, and if you look at where a lot of investment is going, uh, there's a lot more investment beginning to pour into the mid Midwest, away from places like California, which uh, can be it is a tough place to do business, a tough place to start companies. And you got a lot of your companies moving out. A lot of investment kind of moving away from that to the Midwest. That I think is where Indiana has an opportunity, along with some other communities here in the uh, here in the Midwest, to attract some of that uh, some of that money, some of that investment coming in. And I, I will add one other thing. In terms of why Indiana has not uh, perhaps been hit as hard in the tech layoff uh, scene, Uh, Christopher Day uh, from L.A. Ventures said, you know, (laughs) there's a piece of Indiana that's a little more conservative. You look at the startup community, not maybe growing uh, at at as fast a pace, adding a lot of people and then needing to cut back a little more conservative approach here. So we're not going to be impacted perhaps uh, as much on that layoff side of things.
0: Talking to Gary Dick from InsideIndianaBusiness.com on Twitter at IIB. Then you've got this work being done to create a hydrogen hub. You've got Indiana joining forces with Illinois and Michigan, which I don't know if I agree with, but let's uh, start from the basics, uh, from from the beginning. What in the bloody world is a hydrogen hub, and why should we be working with Illinois and Michigan on it?
2: Well, it's uh, kind of uh, gathering resources to make a big pitch for that uh, hydrogen hub to be located here in the Midwest, in particular in northwest uh, Indiana. The uh, the federal government, Department of Energy, uh, is, uh, is funding billions of dollars, uh, throwing billions of dollars out there for the creation of these uh, so-called regional clean hydrogen hubs. Companies like Cummins, Cummins has been in the hydrogen space for a long time, uh, but BP and some really big companies are working on this, in particular looking at Northwest Indiana, that, that access to water in Lake Michigan and all the things going on in that part of the state. So the potential, uh, if Indiana, if the Midwest, but in particular, if Indiana would get this, and there are a lot of people up, in fact, we're going to have something on the show here, hopefully within the next week, to really kind of dive into this. What is it all about? But there's really a feeling that Indiana can uh, can do this. It can happen here that would have the ability or the potential of uh, billions, would a be billions of dollars in investment and lots of jobs uh, in particular up in the northwest part of the state.
0: These jobs, do they play solely in that technical world or is there a bit of construction within this? You know, we often discuss the idea that you need jobs that fit. The people and we should be not just thinking of one industry or one type or, or, you know, thinking something like manufacturing is, is a problem or not worthy of, of Hoosiers. What kind of jobs does this hydrogen hub build?
2: You know, I think without – and we've not gotten uh, in-depth on this in terms of the the kinds of jobs that would be involved here, but certainly there would be a construction element uh, should this come to pass here in Indiana. Uh, And also, I think it would run the range. There would be some highly technical jobs. But typically uh, in these types of things, you've got technician types of jobs that are, you know, not necessarily a four year degree, but uh, two year degrees and uh, uh, credentials and and, uh, uh, associate degrees, those 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 types of things. So I think it would be a range of jobs. And that's the The pieces you look at the semiconductors uh, that that uh, industry that is funneling billions of dollars of investment, including here in Indiana. a lot of those jobs are are technical in nature but not necessarily advanced degree type jobs. So it really does span uh you know the the spectrum, if you will, and that 's why the Ivy techs and the Vincennes universities of the world, those two year institutions are going to play a big role in in uh, in funding these types of uh, types of investment. I should mention one other thing back to that whole consortium thing on this hydrogen hub why Indiana Michigan Illinois uh, connecting there is uh, as part of this proposal I think that Indiana is putting forward uh, they're kind of focusing on a a corridor that would uh, run between Chicago and Detroit uh, transportation corridor that would play a big part of this so having you know Indiana along with Illinois and Michigan on this is part of that uh, part of that strategy
0: that's Gary Dick inside IndianaBusiness.com. I appreciate him as always. Uh, the, these I, ideas of doing things regionally, uh, I think there is a methodology to it. I don't know if I'm totally sold, but I I could be convinced with data that if you engage multi-state, here's the advantage that you can get from it because even if you don't get the big thing, you can get the tangential things that create opportunity for future big things on your own, right? I can I can visualize it out. I think I could explain it. I just don't know if it's true. I can see it, I can say it as as you just heard, but it does does being connected with Illinois and Michigan actually hurt us more than it helps us. Meaning just because we share a region doesn't mean that we share a value. What they do in Illinois and in Michigan These are not business-friendly states. So are we sure that as a business-friendly state, we want to be connected with them? That's the question. I just went the long way around to get to that moment. That's the question. Would we be better off teaming up with Ohio? But maybe Ohio doesn't need us. And me personally, I'm sick and tired of losing opportunities to Ohio. I'm infuriated by it. Ohio is public enemy number one uh, in, in, a, in a joyful way in that they somehow have figured out how to keep people who go to their universities, kids or so students, I should say, who go to their universities, how to keep them there. We're not doing that in Indiana. We're not doing that at Purdue. We're not doing that at IU. We're not doing it at Ball State. We're not doing it at Notre Dame. And I don't know why Notre Dame isn't more part of this conversation. For some reason, they're always on the periphery. I have yet to figure that one out. But how do we keep people here? And how do we create more value here? And and when you take a look at Ohio as as in terms of taxes, it isn't an income tax conversation. Now, is it? It's a something else conversation. There's there's either a perception or there's a reality. And perception is reality. So it's one in the same. Either people believe that they're going to get a better Uh, type of worker in Ohio, they're going to have a better quality of life in Ohio. Ohio is just simply cooler than Indiana, which would give Indiana a, a serious amount of work to do in the lift on the reprogramming of people's heads about how to view the state. Or, or there's something actual happening. And what is that? And how do you go about Well, combating that, competing against that. I don't mind competition. What I don't like is the lack of winning. Someone once uh, commented to me that when it comes to Indiana, you have to understand how we do things. Indiana is very rarely first. What Indiana tries to do is perfect. They may not be first to the to the marketplace, if you will, first to to pushing something out there. But when they do, it is well thought out, it is well reasoned, and it works. And that's our that as they described it to me. That's our jam, and I'm like, did you just did you just say jam? That's our jam. It's like, all right, well, you're excited about it, but let's argue that that's true. It still doesn't change that we're losing out on opportunities. And that drives me nuts. And that is true, absolutely, of our relationship with Ohio. Does having a relationship in this hub conversation, this hydrogen hub conversation, with with Illinois and Michigan, does it hurt us? It's one thing to be a regional play. Again, I said you could show me with data that this works. But haven't we noticed that Michigan and Illinois aren't good places to do work? So why do we want to be associated with them in the idea of attracting work? I'm a man with questions. I would love to get some answers. Hydrogen hubs and and that kind of business here in Indiana? Fine by me. Fine by me. Keep it right here. I'm Tony Katz. So earlier today, I spoke with Tony Kinnett, who hosts a weekend show on WIBC. He's a reporter over at Daily Signal about activists protesting at the Indiana State House. They are opposed to House Bill 1608, which says that you can't teach gender identity and sexual orientation as a matter of instruction to K through third grade. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Well, there are people, uh, the, the ACLU of Indiana, a whole group of people, all over this. This is the don't say gay bill. They never stop lying. They don't care that they lie to Hoosiers. They really don't. This is coming from the Indiana Democratic Party. They don't care that they're lying to Hoosiers. This is coming from the ACLU. And in my view, they don't care uh, that they're lying uh, to Hoosiers. They don't care. So Tony Kinnett was there at the uh, statehouse uh, earlier today where they were screaming and yelling. He said it was so incredibly loud. So I asked him, what do these protesters think that they're doing? What do they think the legislation says? What are they trying to get done?
3: Uh, The argument they're trying to make is that uh, teaching LGBTQ plus content and other sexual content uh, to minors, uh, to children K through three, is their right. They think that it is necessary, according to several um, developmental psychologists and LGBTQ advocates, say that it's healthy for kids to receive sex education as early as grades K through three, as well as different gender uh, instruction and alternative lifestyles. Um, That's, of course, nothing in the bill says uh, that it's banning being gay or LGBTQ of any way, shape or form. Uh, It's just saying that under the public tax dollar, you cannot teach students sexual content in a K through third grade classroom.
0: I mean, I just read the legislation and it's pretty clear and straightforward, you cannot create instruction uh, to study, explore, or inform students about gender fluidity, gender roles, gender stereotypes, gender identity, gender expressions, or sexual orientation. As I understand the legislation, Tony Kinnett, it does not stop conversations if a student should ask a question. It says, as teachers, we don't engage this field of
3: study. I mean, it's exactly that. They also believe, uh, from several conversations that I've had, that this would prevent gay and uh, transgender teachers from uh, being allowed to exist. And those are their words, not mine. Uh, that apparently, once this bill passes, Sano snaps his fingers and everyone just disappears. Uh, this bill doesn't ban any gay teacher from, like, having a picture of them with their their spouse in the in the classroom. Nothing like that is a part of this legislation at all. Uh, This seems to just be a lot of preening, like you said, just to chant and yell the word gay in the Indiana Statehouse.
0: So that was just some of my conversation with Tony Kinnett of The Daily Signal. I am not surprised that the political left is taking this position. I am only sad that they've engaged such a culture war and think that children are this ground zero. And I cannot say strong enough, you're right to fight this you should fight this it's a shame that we have to you did not start this culture war but you know for the sake of kids that you need to end it so don't be afraid to speak out about it find everything TonyCats.locals.com tomorrow everyone take care